0: Welcome to Lupus Forum's review
1: of ULA 2023. In this podcast, we're going to be covering some of the key Lupus com- uh, content from the Congress in more detail. There was an awful lot to take in, so whether you're able to attend or not, this is a good opportunity to catch up on anything you've missed. And it's my pleasure to be sharing this review with Vivica Strand, who's an adjunct clinical professor in the Division of Immunology and Rheumatology at the Stanford University School of Medicine in the USA. So thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you. Nice to be here. And this has been a good ULAR meeting. I think there's been a lot of good information, it particularly has... in lupus.
1: Yeah. What were your highlights?
0: Well, i I. We keep hearing about the CAR T cell work, but it stays more and more interesting, and I think it's getting enthusiastically um, addressed. I think that the upadacitinib with Brutinib combination is interesting, although it appears that it's mostly going to be upadacitinib that's that's the effective part of the product, which is very interesting. And then teletasicep was interesting to me.
1: I, I agree, we, and so we picked all of those out as highlights, um, and as I always say when I come back from these conferences it's just it's great to meet everyone and have some face to face contact with your colleagues. Um, uh, so let's go on to the um, first abstracts thing. So first. Um, There's always quite a lot of information about glucocorticoids in the field of lupus, um, and we're more and more mindful of the need to minimize them. So we picked out one abstract on that theme, which is this um, French study led by uh, Laurent Arnaud. So this was a a nationwide study of glucocorticoid use. So we see quite a lot of studies where where we try and describe glucocorticoid use How many patients get excessive doses? What are the consequences of that? Um, A lot of those are done in specific cohorts, maybe in cohorts who are specialist centers. Um, And of course those may include, perhaps they're more severe patients because they're tertiary referral centers, or perhaps they're good at limiting their steroids because they've got access to a lot of other therapies. So I think the nice thing here was this was a really nationwide cohort from a French health insurance claims database Um, So it's the first time we've got a nationwide study, and what they've shown is that overall 48.2% of lupus patients, so almost half of lupus patients, were receiving glucocorticoids. Uh, Of those, 35.7% were a dose less than 5 milligrams, whereas 6.1% were a dose of greater than 7.5 milligrams a day, which is the kind of level where we normally think is unacceptable. Um, there were a few associations with the glucocorticoid use, so there was more if they were, there were higher doses in patients who were in this universal healthcare program in France, and there were more if patients had specific organ manifestations. Some of A lot of them are manifestations of more severe disease like kidney involvement, skin, pleuropericardial disease, um, mm. thrombocytopenia. The patients who were getting more than five milligrams were getting more complications um, consistent with what we, what you'd expect and I know some. It's, sometimes it's hard to tell whether those complications are due to the lupus or due to steroids or due to something else but actually a lot of those really sound like they're directly due to the steroids um, and patients who were receiving larger doses were more likely to be on other the lupus therapies, non-steroid treatments like immunosuppressants. So you can see the attempts there to use other drugs to limit glucocorticoid use, but also still some work to go to get that down in more patients. What, what do you think of that one?
0: I thought it was interesting as well. Um, I was a bit surprised that, that uh, they were actually down to only about half of the patients being treated with steroids. Because yeah. we seem to be having a very hard time getting people to use less steroids or even no steroids, and so this was this was an interesting study from that point of view.
1: I mean, I thought the number who were having more than seven point five milligrams a day was actually lower than I thought it might have been uh, at one yeah. percent. Um, I guess some of the other things that might one of the other things that might explain there are modern healthcare systems. They've got access access to a lot of other therapies maybe um, of course the other and of course the other thing is you know the the, the demographics of the population will determine sure. how much steroids are used with uh, european ancestry patients generally having milder disease so the next we section we had some abstracts on new data on established therapeutic approaches didn't we and You've taken a look at the first one of those, haven't you, with the, this paper on bulimumab?
0: Yeah, so this is a predictors of renal flares from four of their phase three trials, the BLIS-52, 76, NEA or Northeast Asia, and BLIS-SC. And this is one of the series of analyses that Iani parody has done. He's uh, at the Karolinska. And I think he's been allowed to sort of play with the bulimimab database. And he's come up with a lot of interesting analyses. So this was post hoc looking for risk factors for renal flares. And this is a question because of course, there's always been the idea that maybe some people are still gonna get renal disease while they're on bulimimab. And although it's a good treatment and accepted treatment for nephritis, and then whether they had developed the renal disease before they started the bulimumab or they developed it during bulimumab. At any rate, uh, what he found were, of course, the best predictor of renal flares was a current or former renal involvement at baseline, and that was a hazard ratio of 9.4, statistically significant. Baseline low serum albumin, as we might expect, increased proteinuria with a higher hazard ratio of 1.3 versus 0.9, and then, of course, low C3 levels, 1.8 hazard ratio. What was also interesting is that the antibody profile differed between the placebo group, where positive anti-SM antibodies were considered a risk factor, hazard ratio of 2.9, whereas in the volumimab groups, it was anti-RNP and anti-cardiolipin with hazard ratios of 2.8 and 1.8. So this is very interesting and perhaps we can use this as another way of predicting renal flares, which would be very helpful as as we are following our patients longer and longer on some of the same therapies.
1: Yeah, I mean, there've been some people who've reported case reports here and there of patients who went right. on bulimimab for another reason and then got a lupus nephritis flare um which re- you know i think has raised the question of whether is that because somehow the bulimumab shifts the you know changes the lupus in some way that it goes to another organ or is it just that obviously they started bulimumab because they had active lupus and their lupus just went on flaring for a while. I think these data, and that's what I was thinking about, and I think these data would suggest it's the latter really, isn't it? If you're at risk of renal flares anyway, those are the people who who get them. It's not the people who you would never expect to have renal involvement, is it? the other thing I noticed when, when they were presenting it was they, they said it, I think they said it was 192 flares in over 3,000 patients, so 6%, something like that. So,
0: not, yeah, not an extensive number of flares. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Good point.
1: So, then um, some additional data here from phase two and phase three studies. And um, the first one is one that I've presented. Um, so this was a study that I did, I've been doing for quite a few years now, and it's a small trial, so it's a feasibility trial, um, although it is randomized, and the idea was here to try and solve some of the issues to do with lupus trials, and particularly as that related to rituximab, because, you know, when rituximab, the first biologic to be tried in a lupus, everyone thought it would work, and I think a lot of people were quite shocked by the results when the trials were all negative and have it's never really been properly addressed You know exactly how to measure that uh, but also then obviously since then there's been lots of other biologics I think where we've had trials that were negative but a feeling that maybe that answer is wrong and the drug really did work maybe for various reasons but sometimes you've got two trials that disagree with each other so you think it must must not be right so the idea here was to try a different design that had a few different features to try and measure um, response more accurately. So, first thing is it's all about lupus arthritis, one of the most common manifestations. And then, what that that has some advantages because if it's all about arthritis, you can scan all the patients with ultrasound at the start to make sure they've got active disease, um, which mm-hmm. should help. You can also maybe have some more stricter standard of care. So they couldn't go over 10 milligrams of prednisolone at baseline and no more than 25% increases through the study. Um, And there are outcome measures that might be more customized to the joints, like like joint counts, or like a tool we developed called the Lambda. It's it's kind of provisional, but it's like a DAS28 for lupus arthritis um, with a, a composite of visual analog scores and joint counts, et cetera. So um, uh, that was the, that was the idea of the study. Um, uh, And in terms of the feasibility, it looked good. So, you know, we retained, we screened patients in quite well, the the, the patients we screened, large numbers of them went on to get randomised and most of them completed all their assessments and completed the, the activity scores and things accurately um there was another feature was that there was this rescue on if you got to 16 weeks at the primary endpoint and, and you weren't good you could be unblinded and have rituximab if you've been on placebo um the, the the slightly surprising part came when we looked at so it, of course this wasn't this is a, this is like 30 patients so you can't really measure the efficacy very well but of course we wanted to have a look and we have a lot of adamant. And the surprising part, when we looked at this kind of preliminary evidence, of the efficacy, was that actually in the early time points, the, as in four weeks and eight weeks, the patients who were on placebo, and that, that, of course, the rituximab arm got methylpred 100 and rituximab, and the placebo just got the methylpred 100 and placebo, so there's a bit of steroid on the placebo arm. But the patients who are on the placebo arm are actually doing better than the rituximab arm. Uh, four weeks and eight weeks. It's very surprising, um, but then as he got to 16 weeks, they kind of came back together again. So it sort of seemed like actually in the short term, rituximab were a bit worse, which is a bit weird. Um, but then when we looked across all the cycles given, all the open label, all the, all the rescue therapy, everything, there was good improvement with rituximab at zero to 16. Um, And that was backed up by ultrasound improvement as well, so it's a bit of a complicated message, and I spent a long time thinking about it, I was actually still thinking about it the day before I gave the presentation, and I made an extra slide to try and explain what I thought, which was um, kind of that maybe in the short term, you can have little flares if you have rituximab, the, the cell killing you, you, you're, you're, you're disrupting a finely balanced immune system. There may be some regulatory effects of B-cells as well. We've previously seen minor skin flares in people who went on to do very well. So maybe early on you get little flares, but then later on you get all the benefits in terms of autoantibodies coming down. Sure. Yeah. So sure. uh, a, a strange result, but uh, I think it does tell us more about exactly how to do trials, more importantly, going forward.
0: That That makes a great deal of sense.
1: So then we had another two um, trials on these two, c- a couple of those interesting mechanisms you mentioned. Right. Uh, didn't we?
0: So this one was ABVV599, but also upadacitinib monotherapy. So they started the study with uh, two groups of the combination of the BTK inhibitor, l and upa. It was a high dose, which you see here and the lower dose, which was 30 and 15. And that group, as well as the Yupa monotherapy 15 milligram were stopped after they did an interim analysis for lack of efficacy. And they continued the high-dose combo and the high-dose Yupa. And what we basically see here is that very similar results between the combo and Yupa itself. and really leads us to believe that probably upatacitinib is uh, actually responsible for the majority of the efficacy. So this was over, non-overlapping signaling pathway since we're looking at BTK versus uh, basically JAK1, little bit of JAK2. Yeah. This was SLEEK, a phase two randomized placebo-controlled trial. And in the end, after the interim, there were 205 patients left. And essentially, the primary endpoint was SRI-4 with a steroid dose of less than or equal to 10 QD at week 24. And that was 48.5% of those in the high-dose combo group and 43.5% in the eupatacitinib group, 30 milligrams. The combo was statistically significant. But the key secondary endpoints showed statistic benefit with both... uh, the combo and with Yupa, as per the Bicla, which was again about 48.5 with the combo, and higher with Yupa 30, 53.2, versus a placebo response of 25%. So that was a nice differentiation. LL-DAS, 39.7, and 50% with Yupa, again with about a 24% placebo effect. And the overall flares and the time to the first flare were substantially reduced in both treatment groups. They had such few flares that they had to combine the flare analysis as opposed to just looking at severe flares of which there were just a couple. And what we've seen from another abstract that was presented was that upadacitinib is modulating the type one interferon signal. And that appears to be the main biomarker of effects driven by both the combo and the singular. And so they are going to care, continue further analyses and trials with upadacitinib thirty milligrams in lupus.
1: Seems like it's the upadacitinib that's doing all the work, and the BTK right. not doing very much, right? Is that right? right. Which is they stretched, because we had some BTK inhibitor trials a year or two, right? Ago, didn't we? and they were all pretty flat as well, weren't they? They, 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 they were. It. And it's, you think they should work those drugs, but. Uh, several trials now saying they're not, the BTK part doesn't have anything to offer.
0: No, it's very interesting. The BTKs just haven't been that effective, impressively effective in lupus for yeah. some reason. The next one is about Ianilumab. And I know Novartis has a lot of enthusiasm about this product. It's essentially an anti baf receptor monoclonal antibody. And so it's it's mostly mostly enhancing B-cell depletion, but then it's also decreasing B-cell differentiation, proliferation, and, and survival with its BAF effects as well. And so they were looking at Ianalumab in 28-week multicenter randomized parallel group double-blind phase two trial, and this is essentially uh, an interim analysis. Um, it, monthly injections of Ianalumab 300 milligrams or placebo, They were looking at outcomes on a monthly basis as well. And their primary outcome was the SRI-4 and either prednisolone dose tapered to less than or equal to five a day or to less than or equal to baseline by week 16 and then maintained to week 28. So the interim analysis at week 28 in a small number of patients, this is 34 patients on anilumab and 33 on placebo, Already, we see a primary outcome in 44% of the patients who received the analumab versus 9% of placebo. That's a nice differentiation. Then 70.6% of the analumab versus 24% of the placebo patients achieved an SRI-4. So there was, again, some consistency, although we always know that those patients who are SRI-4 responders are not necessarily BICLA responders and vice versa. And then the incidence of moderate to severe flow, flares were lower in the anilumab group, 44% versus 64% with placebo, which makes you wonder about this patient population. They must have had fairly active disease. And again, the patients receiving anilumab up to 28 weeks in this interim analysis were more likely to achieve ll lupus low disease activity score than placebo. So Iana Lumab was well tolerated and has efficacy despite the small numbers included in this interim analysis. So it should be interesting to see what the final data show.
1: Yeah, and that's another one that's gone into phase three at the moment, isn't it? I know they're setting up those, those studies uh, at the moment. And, but the just like the next abstract we're going to look at actually it's the these these Deltas in these lupus trials are getting bigger, aren't they?
0: Yes they were yes, a few they years are. Ago,
1: and you don't know what is that because the drugs are getting better or is it because we're getting better at doing the trials you don't know but it it seems like or
0: we or we're getting better at selecting the patient population
1: and, and, and that is a perfect segue into the next um and the next abstract actually because this was the teleceptellacicept trial. Um, that Ronald van Bollenhoven presented. So we've seen a few abstracts on this at conferences in the last year or so. Um, and it's, so this is where you need to think about your BAF biology a bit, really, which is that we, we know BAF or, or bliss is this survival molecule for B cells that they send to the BAF receptor, which is also the target of the enalumab we we're just talking about. But as B cells get a bit later on through their development in memory, B cells and plasma, plasma, plasma cells, they start expressing a diff, different receptors called TASSI and, and, and BCMA, and those uh, respond to an analogous molecule, not, not BAF, but actually one called APRIL. So there's there always been this question about whether map by just knocking out BAF is not really inhibiting that whole system enough that you've still got April um, April signaling going on, and that particularly works on maybe those sort of mature, more developed B cells that maybe are more important. So I think that's the concept here, is the telltassacept is a, a fusion protein of this tassy receptor. It's a receptor that binds both BAF and April. so it should be more comprehensive blockade of the system. And it's already been approved in China in 2021. Uh, but here's a phase three um, randomized controlled trial where the patient's got teletacet 160 milligrams um, or placebo, uh, which is given sub Q or placebo over a period of 52 weeks. Again, primary endpoint SRI4 at week 52, like a lot of other studies. But the real eye-catching thing here is that the primary the, the, the response rates for teletatacisept was 82.6% compared to 38.1% for placebo. So a really big delta there and backed up again by the Salina eye scores and the PGA scores, yes. flare reductions. And so it's exactly what we were just saying, isn't it? It's like, that seems great, you know, a much higher degree of efficacy, but is that because it's such a radically difficult next of action or is it something about this population of patients were more active, more responsive, trial conduct was different or more robust?
0: Yeah, it's one of the questions we have since the study was done in China. The product is approved in China. And we have trouble in the US because FDA wants data from US patients. And they have a lot of trouble with the Chinese data because they say they don't get the details that they want um, about the information of the patients and so on. But this is the second uh, big study with teletacicept that's successful. Now there's another company, Alpine, that's making another April uh, Bliss April dual inhibitor, which they believe is even more specific for April. Uh, more effective against April, and it'll be interesting to see Alpin 303 yeah. how it does. There was an early study here at in the abstract section, uh, which showed that it had effects in in normal volunteers. So it should be interesting in yeah. lupus.
1: I mean, yeah, the, the I think some of these differences between different demographic populations of people are genuinely, you know, quite real things. That and if you, um, in of course. Prevalence of lupus is high in China and often the disease is more severe. So um, that 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 may make it quite different in effect
0: of yeah. drugs. Yeah. Well, we we also know lupus is different in Asians as well yeah. as, you know, when we look across the US studies and we see black Americans and we see Asian Americans and then we see um, Hispanic Americans, and they're all very different from the Caucasians that we've treated as well. So I think there's a lot to be said for the heterogeneity of lupus populations everywhere. So then we're on to some of the more novel therapies now, aren't we? Yes. And I'm glad you get to do this one, although I'm very excited about it as well.
1: Yeah. well I think we're everyone. So everyone's very interested, aren't they? So this um... So CAR T therapy. So this is based on the this is based on targeting B cells and depleting B cells. But I think we've known for a long time that one of the reasons why, one reason why rituximab as the first drug didn't work so well as always was because it didn't kill B cells profoundly enough. So it um it it you can still see B cells in circulation after Rituximum and there's probably even more of them in tissue. Uh, I think that is a general story that's maintained with the monoclonal antibodies: is that you need to give enough drug um, to kill B cells properly. And the later generation depleters, like inalumab, we talked about, or those are kind of glycoengineered to kill B cells more efficiently, but. What they've been up to in oncology is instead of using a monoclonal antibody to kill the B-cell, they've been using these sort of reprogrammed T-cells, so chimeric antigen receptor T-cells, so they, they, they take the patient's own T-cells, um, they sort of reprogram the T-cell receptor so they target CD19 and a B-cell marker and then give them back to the patient so that the T-cells are killing B-cells. Um, it uh, has to be done. It has to be said. That's that. That's not straightforward thing to do. Um, so it has to be given as part of a conditioning regime that involves a lot of other cytotoxic drugs, and that may, of course, have impacts on how this works. Those other drugs, um, and it's also quite a quite a heavy thing for the patient to go through. But they published this case series last year of um, of five patients who had CAR T therapy. Um, and they were commenting that the patients had got quite good remissions lasting up to 18 months and had come off their other therapies. So arguing that by depleting B cells more efficiently, they'd, you know, reset the disease in a more fundamental way than is achieved with molecular antibodies. Um, now, to me at the time, I was kind of thinking, you know, I thought to myself, I remember back in 2002, when David Eisenberg published his case series of rituximab, he said, I've got five patients, I've depleted their B cells, I've got 18 month remissions. It can't, it, almost the exact same thing. Um, so that was my, you know, the first thing I thought is great, I'm, you know, good. That is, is an interesting advance that there may be another, you know, this may do the job better than monoclonals, but I kind of need to see more long lasting data to really convince me that this is something different than what you can do with monoclonals. Um, so this is that. So they followed up their abstract, but they followed up their paper that was published last year with a bit longer term follow-up. Um, and they do, they have seven patients and the, the follow-up's a bit longer. Um, one of the patients I think had a minor renal flare and had a short course of steroids, but otherwise that yes. seemed to be true. But I still personally feel a little bit like I'm not totally convinced that what I'm seeing (laughs) is... You're not,
0: huh?
1: I know, I'm one of the skeptics. Are you?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, they did a renal biopsy in that patient.
1: Yeah. And they found
0: minimal change disease. So essentially it wasn't even lupus. Yeah. And there are new companies in the U.S. now planning to do CAR T-cell therapies and have started. And in fact, the FDA has actually given two of these companies fast-track designation for their CD19 CAR T-cell products. One is called Cavaletta and it's KABA 201, and the other one's called Kyverna and it's KYV 101. So I was actually quite pleasantly surprised that FDA has that much enthusiasm for this type of product. And remember, no one's doing controlled trials. So I think that's an interesting point, and you should remain skeptical, although I think the data is getting better and better as it's getting longer term. The other point is, well, it's only really probably going to be practical if it becomes allogeneic. And there, if this is really true of what Georg says, then it's a single administration. And that might actually give us something that is is actually practical and maybe even affordable if it can be done on an allogeneic basis.
1: Yeah. Um, Ultimately,
0: ultimately, not now. I think
1: I I don't mean to, yeah, I'm I'm not that skeptical. I'm not saying I don't believe it. I'm just saying you need a bit more evidence to say that it's doing something different. The question I asked um, in the session was, you know, the the other reason why I have my reservations about this is that, in the the concept being put forward here this is like you can cure lupus if you do if you hit b cells hard enough it's like saying the reason lupus arose is because b cells made a mistake and it happened and that mistake happened by accident and will only happen once so in other words if we correct what the b cells have done wrong it won't happen again and everything else will fall away and i think those I am I'm not, I'm not. That may be true for some patients, but I don't think it's true for them all. Because, for yeah. example, if you look at the genetics of the lupus, it's substantial, and most of the genes yes. in B cells—they're in, they're either in like interferon pathways, innate pathways, or right. and them aren't an even in the immune system. So, they take like. Set of genes like TREX one, the gene that's not like the most penetrant gene that can give you a lupus syndrome. It's not even in the immune system. It's DNA. So it's like I'm not completely sure that the entire problem is in B Now it might be for some people, no, but it might not be not for I, them. I agree. Um, I agree. Uh, and yes. I think the other thing is, of course, if it is, if one off treatment gives you a really, really long lasting remission, then it's, this is really worth it. But if you're going to keep relapsing, you actually might want monoclonal. Oh, insulin.
0: then it's- then it's a problem then yeah you might
1: want monoclonal antibodies sure. instead so um I, I think it's absolutely fascinating development um
0: but I'm, I yeah well we have well, obinutuzumab yeah. to look forward to as well so yeah. you're right. Well maybe we should move on to the f of okay yes yeah, so although I think we could talk about this for for several hours <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so th- this was uh, from Amgen, and it's ephavolucan alpha, which is an IL-2 mutine. And essentially, they were administering it with the idea that it would not only increase Tregs, but also would, would maybe correct some of the defects in the Tregs uh, and because of the expansion of the population. And so they looked at functional phenotypes of T regs between lupus patients and healthy controls and CD25 levels were used to measure the IL2 signaling as we well know and that is what's promoting the T reg expression. And so of course the CD25 expression levels were much lower in the lupus patients compared to the healthy patients and uh, this was correlated with negatively correlated uh, with FOX p 3 positive Treg and anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies. At day 22, the expression, expression of CD25 had significantly increased and actually was comparable now to healthies, indicating that the Treg population had been expanded and that the number of Tregs in the lupus patients were inversely coordinated correlated with their anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies at baseline. And so what we saw was a peak increase, 53.8-fold above baseline with the IL-2 mutine. And very also, very interestingly, the intensity of the CD25 on the conventional T cells, the CD4-positive conventional T cells, wasn't significantly different between healthies and SLE and therefore really said that it's the Treg population that is defective and is also decreased in lupus and, and bears increasing and uh, otherwise stimulation for better expression. Now, this is interesting, but we already know that one of these IL-2 therapies that was started by Nectar and, and also licensed by Lilly has failed in lupus. And although some of this work is going on in other diseases, this may not be uh, the most effective way of trying to increase a Treg population in lupus. What do you think, Ed?
1: Yeah, that's right, isn't it? I've, I mean, I've seen, we've seen a few reports. There were some academic reports of case studies, and then there were, like you say, there was an, there were other trials. And you can you can you can restore the Tregs, but it's been really hard to show a clinical benefit of that, hasn't it? And I. I I, I don't know if any of these drugs is really ever going to make it to the market, even though it's an intriguing idea. Uh, I mean, it's intriguing because you're not totally immunosuppressing someone, are you? You're trying to restore tolerance, which sounds great. But uh, yeah, I think this, I I don't know if we'll see this in the end. Uh, And then lastly, another one I've looked at, this is another, it's an intriguing mechanism of action, um, which is this drug called zetimizamib. Um, which is an inhibitor of the immunoproteasome. So proteasomes are these things in cells that degrade proteins that have been ubiquitinated, and so the immunoproteasome is one that has a number of immune modulating functions. So generally, if um, the if, if the immune immunoproteasome is inhibited with the zeta then you get a whole load of different immunosuppressive effects. It could be on cytokines, lymphocyte proliferation, migration, adhesion, okay. etc. So I think the interesting thing here is that that sounds like it could have many different potential indications. Lupus is one, but I know the company that's developing are thinking about all sorts of other things like autoimmune hepatitis, they're looking at myocytes mm-hmm. too. So here, what we've got here actually is pretty early phase data. So it's um, you know that this is this is a phase two trial and it's open label. Um, so it's zetamipimib in patients with active LN class three, four or five um, on stable background therapy, and you've got sixty five percent of them got a got a fifty percent reduction in the use PCR yes, placebo, um, and thirty five point three percent got complete renal response. So Sam, okay, that sounds all right, but there's no placebo arm here, and it's it's ju- I think it's just one to keep an eye on, isn't it? It's we 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 don't know yet how promising this is going to be.
0: Right, I I have to agree. We haven't seen a controlled trial with this product in any indication, although I hear they're doing something in dermatomyositis. And 35 years ago, we fought and fought to finally start putting placebo into autoimmune disease trials, and it's been very, very important. And it's part of the reason why the FDA guidances have always said only 12 weeks of placebo exposure, because if you limit it to 12, maybe 14 weeks, you haven't caused an irreversible loss of physical function in terms of hack scores, et cetera. And so yeah. that's really been our way to go forward. And so I really think they need a trial.
1: Yeah, and that's the end of our abstracts. So um, the content from ULA will be available on demand until the 31st of December, 2023. So if you get the chance, you can look at the sessions on SLA that we've highlighted while those are available. And um, that just leads me to thank Vivica for joining me. And thank you for listening. We've got Regular podcasts on the Lupus Forum discussing all the latest publications in the Lupus. So make sure you have a look at lupus forum.com to keep up to date. Thank you for joining us and see you next time.
0: Thank you. It was a pleasure working with you, Ed.
1: Always a pleasure.